0: Well, as Rob already mentioned, we're going through the Psalms uh, on the first Sundays of the month. Uh, It's been our custom in recent years to go through a psalm in order. Each time we're up to Psalm 27. For many of you, I know uh, this is one of your favorite psalms. And if if it's not already, maybe it will be after we read it together this morning. Uh, Our custom here at our church is to stand for the reading of God's word before the sermon, not out of respect for me, but out of respect for the Lord whose word we're reading. So I'll ask you to stand. If you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Psalm 27, it's also printed in your bulletin for you there on the right side. But give ear to the reading of God's word this morning. Of David, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, We, again, we come to you this morning. We thank you for giving us your word, your holy scriptures, that we could know you rightly through Jesus Christ, that we could know your will for us and even know how, how to pray in time of trouble. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well. Psalm 27 is one of those psalms that's probably familiar to a number of you, uh, it's maybe one of your favorite psalms, or at least parts of it. Uh, we sing, and we're going to sing after the sermon, a, uh, a song that is based upon part of Psalm 27. Uh, many people, and many of us have found great comfort in its words of confidence in the early part of the psalm, confidence in the Lord's love for us as his people, his care for us as his people. I was Uh, In in preparing for the sermon I was reading through, as I usually do, uh, Charles Spurgeon has a a series of uh, three-volume commentary called The Treasury of David. And in the beginning of this section of the Psalms, he was referring to Psalm 51, but he mentioned that uh, very often he would sit down to try to write. And we think of Charles Spurgeon, if you know who that is, the great 19th century uh, British uh, preacher, uh, we think of him as this great, you know, we call him the Prince of Preachers. You know, we, and as a pastor, I, I, I'm always tempted to think, oh, he probably never had a hard day in his life when it came to writing a sermon or preparing to preach. And in his description of Psalm 51, which uh, I think applies to this one in some ways as well, he said that, you know, many days he sat, he sat down and tried to write the beginnings of his sermon on that psalm, and he couldn't put the pen to paper. He couldn't bring himself to start to write. He felt like he was on holy ground. You know, he, could, he didn't know where to start. And I confess in, in a lot of the times in preaching in general, but in particular the Psalms, I feel the same way. I don't know where to start. Now, you start at the beginning, I know, but it's hard to figure out what to say. How do you comment on a Psalm like this? Uh, it's very hard to do, but in verse 1, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I, I think you and I, if we take comfort from this psalm, and I hope we do, I think it's because we we are a fearful a fearful bunch, aren't we? I am. I don't know. Maybe you are uh, as well. You know, throughout the first half, roughly of the psalm, the first six verses, you know, David is going on and on about his confidence in the Lord, the Lord's goodness, his love for him, his protection of him. David. All his words are about confidence in the Lord, boldness in the Lord his God. Uh, at least three times in the first uh, number of verses, the first three verses, David says that because of his God, he had no fear. Twice in verse 1, and it, also in verse 3, where he says, Though an army encamp against me. You know, we have the saying, you and know, you what army? You know, David's like, bring it. You know, if an army encamps against me, my heart shall what? Not fear. I've got God, who am I supposed to be afraid of? I've got the Lord, whom shall I fear? If an army comes against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. You know, this is this would be a great foxhole psalm. I should have made that the title of the sermon, a foxhole psalm. Because you know, David isn't saying, you know, what what is he not saying here? He's not saying, I don't have enemies. He's not even saying, I don't ever have to worry about war. We know from the scriptures, David fought in war, didn't he? He's not even saying that he never had to face an army encamped against him. We don't know when the psalm was written. We don't know what situation in, in, Paul, in David's life excuse me, that he wrote it about. But we do know from 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel that, that David did face armies. David did face armies. Even the army of Saul encamped all around him. This wasn't a hypothetical thing for him to say. So this is a foxhole psalm. Even an army, according to David in the first part of the psalm, couldn't shake David's confidence in the Lord, his trust in his God. Now I think if you're anything like me, you know, we read this psalm, and I, I think to myself, I want to be more like David, at least in the first six verses. You know. I that's I want to be like that. That's not me, but that's what I want to be like. And as we've said a number of times throughout our study in the Psalms, you know, one of the things that the Psalms do is they teach us the words of faith. They put the words of the faithful in our mouths and make us say things that we on our own wouldn't say. I don't know about you, but on my own, I would never say, Whom shall I fear? I would never say, Bring it on. You know, you and one army. David puts those words in our mouths. The Holy Spirit, by his inspiration of the Psalm, puts those words in our mouths for a reason. But you might have noticed when I was reading the psalm, or maybe when you were reading it on your own, that the tone of the psalm changes, and it might even be seen as changing abruptly in verse 7. And that change in tone and language, uh, to some it seems so abrupt and so drastic uh, that, that some scholars, I would say some unbelieving scholars to some degree, but they've concluded that what we have here is in fact not one psalm but two. They, they see David as, you know, in some sense, this psalm is kind of, uh, you know, schizophrenic. It's it's got two separate tracks that, to some scholars, don't go together. What they've uh, sometimes suggested is that we have two different psalms, and that later on in history, some editor or compiler, for some reason, decided to put them together into one psalm. We don't. I, I haven't read a good explanation for why that would be. If these two parts don't go together, if they're so contradictory, why would an editor be so careless to put them together? And why would we keep them that way? Uh, you know, if, if a later editor could have had a reason to put those two uh, hypothetical psalms together to form one united psalm, isn't it just as likely and maybe even more likely that what we have here is really just what David wrote? One united psalm with one purpose uh, and, with, and that David wrote it that way for a very good reason. I think we're going to see as we go on in our, in our study this morning, we're going to see it's not two psalms haphazardly put together. It's one psalm, and the two parts really aren't that different after all. They really do go together. You know, Many scholars can't seem to reconcile the confident language and praise and boasting in the Lord in verses 1 through 6 with the almost frantic pleading and uh, prayer found in verses 7 to 14. Listen to verse 7. David writes there, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. This isn't your calm, collected, you know, pre-composed prayer that David's talking about here. He's talking about crying out to the Lord in prayer. You know, we're very calm and composed. Us Presbyterians do all things decently and in good order. We don't cry out. That would be un-, un- uh, Yeah, unlike us. But have you ever felt like that? Have you ever prayed like verse 7? Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Have you ever felt uh, like God wasn't listening? Have you ever felt like God wasn't listening to your prayers? Have you ever felt like the heavens, as the saying goes, were made of brass? And that your prayers just can't get through, they can't penetrate the heavens to where the Lord is at. Your prayers can't make it to the throne of grace through those heavens that are made of brass. Well, if you've ever felt like that, you probably have. Maybe you've never told anyone that, but if you've ever felt that way, if you feel that way now, the first thing I would say this morning is you're in good company. Not just good company in the people next to you, good company in King David. The man after God's own heart prayed that way. So you're not alone in praying that way and you aren't alone uh, when the Lord hears those prayers uh, have you ever known someone or something in your life you know a fact a particular thing you ever known something in your head and you know it's true nobody has to convince you of it's truth but somehow the truth that however many inches between your head and your heart it, it seems to get lost along the way there you're, you're convinced of something being true you know it's true but you have a hard time keeping it in mind or remembering it and taking it to heart. Have you ever known something to be true, especially about God's love for you in the scriptures, in the gospel, but had a hard time grasping and remembering it in a time of trial? Isn't that when you have a hard time remembering? It's not when you're sitting there in your study reading your Bible. It's when you're out and about, when you're struggling in the trials of life, that we have a hard time keeping those truths in mind. Well King David, I think, in this Psalm tells us, he's been there and he's done that. It's you're not the only one. It's not unusual. Verses seven through fourteen, if you've ever been a Christian for a long period of time, you know how seven and fourteen, those 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 last section of the verses there in the Psalm, you know how those verses go with the previous six. They aren't contradictory at all. It's it's a picture of the Christian life. It's a picture of our struggles in the christian life i 'll give you an example of one of those truths that we know up here, but sometimes it 's hard to keep it in mind and in our hearts you know if you 've been a Christian for a while you've you 've probably uh, taken comfort, maybe great comfort, like I have from Romans chapter eight you 'd be hard pressed to find a more comforting passage maybe psalm twenty three in all of scripture but Romans tw- chapter eight verse twenty eight what does it say You might even have it memorized it says And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? For good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, all things, that God makes them all work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, if if you read through Romans 8, it's always important to keep a verse in context. We don't yank a verse out all by itself. Now, but when Paul says there, in the context there that God makes all things work together for our good, what he's really saying there is that God makes all bad things work together for your good, isn't he? That's the context. No one has to promise you, you know, uh, God's going to make all good things work together for your good. It's, it's, it's redundant. You know, nobody, nobody comes to church and says, hey, uh, Pastor... I I have this news, I won the lotto. I've won millions of dollars, I'm set for life in this world. What am I going to do? How is God going to make that work together for my good? Nobody gets a big promotion at their job and and goes home and says to their wife or their husband, Honey, I don't know what I'm going to do. How is God supposed to work good out of this? It's, It's inherently good. You see the good at it on its face value. It's when the bad things happen that we wonder, that we hit our knees and pray and say, hear me, O Lord, when I cry out to you. How? What's your purpose in all this? I know God doesn't let anything slip through the cracks, that he has reasons for everything. But what's he going to do? The context of Romans 8.28, we can find in verse 35, where Paul talks about these things, tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Those are the things that, what, that Paul says God works together for our good. Those are the very things that cause us to waver and have doubts and have fears. Those are the things that God will yet work together for our good. So you might know that Romans 8.28 is true. It really is true. And that, it's, that it promises and assures you that your faithful God and Savior really is watching over you. In such a way that not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of your Father in heaven. And in fact, all things must work together for your salvation. The truth of that fact and promise of God can be very difficult for you and I to remember when you are going through the trials and afflictions in this life, can't they? You know it, but you don't know it. You know it, but you can't remember it when you need it the most. If that describes you, maybe even this morning, then I would say this psalm has a lot to say to you and to I this morning. And we thank God for it. Well, the first thing you want to look at is in verses 1 through 6. It's David's confidence. His confidence in the Lord. It's the first thing we're faced with in the, in the text. Verse 1, verse 1 God descri- or David describes God as three things. As three things to him. One, his light. Two, his salvation. And three, as the stronghold of his life. God is my light, my salvation, the stronghold, a fortress. A mighty fortress is our God, the great hymn. Well, David says, yeah, God is my fortress. God is the place I run for protection. And what's the result of that? What's the result of God being David's light, his salvation itself, and and his stronghold or fortress? No fear. It's what David says in the text. Of, of whom shall I be afraid? Whom shall I, shall I fear? If the Lord himself is your light, if the Lord himself is your salvation and the stronghold of your life, whom should you fear? No one. That's, that's the right answer. It's not how we often feel. But how is that, why is that the case? It, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's as obvious as the nose on your face. The presence of God casts out fear. When you fear God, you need not fear any man or any situation. You know, recently our family uh, got to go to SeaWorld. There was an inexpensive deal for us, and we like those kind of deals. Uh, And, uh, you know, these days, uh, I was told that when I was a a little baby, I was at SeaWorld in Orlando. I don't remember it. But these days, SeaWorld has a lot more than just big fish and big mammals. I know they aren't all fish. Uh, It also has a big roller coaster called the manta. Uh, it didn't look terribly high. I took a look at it and kind of thought, well, it looks fast. It looks exciting. But it didn't look like it was 10 stories tall. It didn't look I – I don't like heights. Um, so I, I asked Benjamin, our 6-year-old, <coughs> uh, who's six, going on 16, uh, I asked him, you know, do you want to go on the ride? Would you like to go on that big, you know, fast, scary roller coaster? And, and what do you think he said? Yeah, you know, <laughs> where's the line? Let's Let's go. Uh, he, so, you know, he he wanted to go. And I asked him more than once because dads can get in trouble when they, you know, push their sons a certain way. And I said, I better make sure he really wants to go. Ben, do you really want to go? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dad, I want to go on that roller coaster. So we kind of got lost looking for the line. We get in line and and, uh, and we go and we uh, get in line. We check to make sure he's tall enough. Part of me was almost hoping he wasn't. It's like, oh, sorry, can't go. Uh, Dad, Dad got uh, off the hook there. But he was tall enough to go on it. As you're waiting in line, these days, this is a little bit different than when I was a kid. The loudspeaker is blaring this laundry list of medical reasons why maybe you shouldn't go on this ride. You know, don't go on this ride if you have a heart condition. Don't go on this ride if you're pregnant. Don't go on this ride if you think you're going to be pregnant. Don't go on this ride if you think you might die from it. Don't go on this ride. It went on and on and on. It was longer than the ride. You know. Um, so we finally get to the front. You know, and we're waiting in line. We're the the next ones on, and we get on. We see the people in front of us uh, go on. And finally, it was our turn. Well, what do you think would have happened if when we got to the front of the gate, I looked at Ben and was like, have fun. You know, see, I'll see you at the end. What do you think he would have done? Maybe he would have gotten on, I don't know. But chances are he wouldn't have gone. He would have been like, what? You know, if if you're not going, I'm not going. Uh, You know, that would have been, uh, you know... Now, what if I had, uh, you know, what if I had told him how safe it was going to be? You know, Just go on it. You'll be fine. I've never seen anyone fall off. You know, you'll, be, you'll be good. It'll be, it'll be fine. Uh, what if, you know, it wouldn't have mattered if, you know, when you're waiting, the car pulls up when it's done, and it lets the people out, and some of them are kind of wobbly, but some, most of them are just like, I'm getting back in line. If I don't get on the ride, he's not going to look at those other people and the big smiles on their face and go, okay. See you, Dad, and get on. That's not going to convince him to go on the ride. You know, what if one of the employees, you know, they had all kinds of people there working on it, checking checking to make sure things were safe. They could have sat down with him and said, look, little man, um, you know, here's how it's designed. Here's how the safety harness keeps you in. Uh, it's perfectly safe. They could have talked to him for half an hour. Without me going on, he probably wouldn't go on. But with his papa sitting next to him, we get right in and we go. And we take off. Now, when when it first took off, it took off like a cannon. You know, we we were sitting there, and it's kind of that click, clack, click, clack, click, clack, boom. And we're sitting there waiting. And I'm checking my watch, and all of a sudden it goes flying. His eyes got all big, like what? You know, and my my eyes probably got a little bit big too. Uh, You know, but all I did was reach out and hold his hand. Now, my hand's not going to keep him in that ride, right? Right, Ben. My hand wasn't the thing holding him in that ride. It was the harness. But when I held his hand, the fear went away. You know, I I might have been more scared than he was on the ride, frankly. But, you know, he just needed to know that his papa was with him. That's what drove up the fear. Well, the same kind of thing I think applies to us when it comes to God, doesn't it? I'm not in the place of God by any stretch. But, you know, we're afraid of a lot of things. And sometimes with good reason. A lot of things are too big for us. A lot of things are too scary for us. Uh, You know, sometimes they're too much for us to handle if we're honest a lot of times the things are too much for us to handle but if we if we don't have the lord himself as our light as our salvation and as our stronghold life quickly becomes more than we can handle and so what happens if we don't have the lord as our light our salvation and our stronghold we start looking around for other things to be our light and our salvation and our stronghold and if that something is not god we're in big trouble. We will find ourselves in big trouble. You know, if you think about idolatry, that's that's really what idolatry is, isn't it? It's not bowing down just to a piece of stone or wood. It's putting something else in the place that only God should be in. That's what idolatry is, putting something or someone else in the place of God, as though as our protection in life, as our light, in a dark place, and as our salvation. But if God himself, if the Lord Jesus Christ is your salvation, your light, and your stronghold, nothing is too dark, too deadly, or too dangerous for you. So I have to ask you this morning, Is what's your light? Is God himself, is Jesus Christ your light? He is the light of the world. Not just is he light, you know, it's all too easy for us to think in abstract terms, isn't it? You know. I'm not asking is God light? I'm asking is God your light? I'm not asking is Jesus salvation. I'm asking is is Jesus your salvation? Is he your stronghold? That's what the psalmist commends to us this morning. Is if God Himself is your light, your salvation and your stronghold, I think from our text this morning it'll show in our desires to be with him as well, won't it? That's, that's the connection. That's the result uh, of, of what he says in verse, verse 1. In verse 4, David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, or desired of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. You know, David desired or asked one thing of the Lord. One. One thing. Think about that. If God were to grant you one wish, you know, think of it like, remember the cartoon Aladdin? You know, he had three wishes and you could ask whatever he wanted. Well, if God said to you, God is not a genie in a bottle, but if, if God were to say to you, you can have one thing, what would it be? I bet you most of our thoughts would probably spring to what, in the light of eternity, would be kind of silly. We'd think of things down here. You know and what does David say one thing I've, I've asked for one thing David didn't want stuff David had stuff David wanted what David wanted a whom he wanted the lord the lord himself is all David needed and all he he wanted the lord himself was David's one thing so I asked this morning what's your one thing what's that one thing that you can't do without is the Lord your one thing? If the Lord is your light, He will be your one thing. If the Lord is your salvation, He will be your one thing. If the Lord is the stronghold of your life, He will certainly be your one thing. The Psalm teaches us a lot of things, uh, but I think one thing it teaches us here in this text is is the importance of worship, the importance of, of worship. Do you want to have confidence in the Lord in time of trial? Then don't neglect time spent in the house of God. A desire to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of our lives in heaven, will show itself in a desire to be in the house of the Lord here on earth. I think those two things go together. If we want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in heaven, we'll want to see him more and more as he reveals himself in his word in this life as well. Confidence in God, confidence in the Lord, comes from knowing the Lord better. The better we know our God, the more confident we will be in him. And not only that, what what is worship? Sometimes it's helpful to to define our terms, right? What exactly are we doing this morning? What is worship? It's to ascribe worth to the Lord. It's to ascribe worth to the Lord. It's to acknowledge him for what he is. For his many perfections, his power, his sovereignty, his goodness, his grace towards us in Jesus Christ. It's not without reason, uh, I didn't know that Rob was going to pick Hebrews or the joke from Hebrews. Uh, but Hebrews 12:28 and 29, it says this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a what? Our God is a consuming fire. You know, we we when Dan read Deuteronomy five, and it referred to that scene at the mountain, you know, and and Hebrews talks about that later on as well. You know, we we have this tendency to think, well, that was Old Testament. Now, the actual mountain Mm -hmm. being the place to go, that's Old Testament. But God hasn't changed. That's the point of the writer of Hebrews is making. Is God still a consuming fire? Yes. Yes, but we can come to him through Christ and we can worship him acceptably with reverence and awe through Jesus Christ. Why is it that acceptable worship must be with reverence or fear and awe? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why, why is that? Why must we worship God with reverence and awe? The simple answer is because it's a fitting way to, for us to worship for who God really is. It's It's... It's the way worship lines up with who God actually is. Does our worship lead us more and more to revere God? That's a good test for worship. It's not the only one, but it's a good test. Does our worship lead us more and more to revere God, to fear him in a godly way? Does it leave us more and more in awe of him? Does our worship lead us to have an awe of God and who he is? On the other hand, if our worship is... Of God is entertainment oriented. If our worship of God is entertainment oriented, that kind of worship is the kind of worship that's going to let you down when you need it the most. We we think too pragmatically. We think, oh, well, I enjoy this. This is what it should be. Worship that is not with reverence and awe will let you down because it reduces your view of God. Entertainment does not lead to reverence and awe of God. That's the biggest problem with that kind of thing. What does entertainment do? It trivializes God. Well, a trivialized God is not a God who's going to be your stronghold in time of trouble. A trivial God is no one's light, is no one's salvation, and is no one's stronghold. A God who is here for our amusement will not be our refuge and strength in time of trouble. True biblical worship teaches and trains us. You ever think about that? Worship teaches us. Worship trains us. I hope we all enjoy it. Uh, But it, it does have a teaching and training and molding aspect to it. It trains us to view God rightly and to have a holy fear and reverence of him. And the fear of God is the antidote for the fear of anyone or anything else. If we fear God, we will fear no man. The old Puritan writer John Flavel puts it this way in his book, Triumphing Over Sinful Fear. He says, the fear of God will swallow up the fear of man. A reverential awe and dread of God will extinguish the creature's slavish fear as the rain puts out the fire. If you fear God, you won't fear man. The more we fear God, the less we'll fear anything else beside him. So it's no wonder David wanted to spend all of his days with God. It's no wonder David wanted to spend all the rest of his days in the house of the Lord gazing on on the Lord's beauty and inquiring in his temple. He wanted to know his Lord better and better. No wonder David was so confident that he would, at the end of all his trials, in verse 6, he would offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. He knew he would sing and make melody to the Lord. Well, the next thing, the, the last part of the psalm is David's prayer. We've seen David's confidence, his praise, about David's prayer. His confidence in the Lord didn't keep him from praying to the Lord honestly. David was no hypocrite. David prayed exactly what he felt and thought. When he was tempted to fear, he prayed to the Lord honestly. And I think that should be a lesson to you and I as well. Listen to verses 7 through 12. It's basically his prayer. The Psalms teach us how to pray. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. You know, when David said, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? You know, bring on the army. Again, it didn't mean he didn't have enemies. He refers to them over and over again. His enemies, his adversaries, uh, false witnesses rising against him. He knew that the Lord wanted him to seek his face. And so he sought the Lord's face. But yet, what does he pray? He still prayed that God wouldn't hide his face from him. Have you ever felt like that? That God's hiding his face? We do feel like that at times. We do feel like that at times. And when that happens, usually it's during a time of trial or hardship. What do you do? You pray honestly to God. Show me your face. You know, don't hide your face from me, David knew that his God would never leave him or forsaken. We know the same truth from Hebrews 13.5. But what did he pray? How did he pray? He still prayed the Lord would not turn him away in anger or cast him off. He'd always been his help in the past. He rehearses God's help in the past in this psalm. And yet he still prayed for continued help in the present, didn't he? In fact, he took courage from that. God has helped me in the past. He'll help me in the future. He may not know how or when, but he knew that he would. And we can have the same confidence. We can pray the same way. David knew that the Lord would accept him even if his own parents were to turn their backs upon him. I don't think David's actually saying his parents cast him out. I don't think that's what the text is implying. You know, some of us, we have families that have cast us out. Some of us have hard relationships with our families, with our our blood relatives, you know, blood is supposed to be thicker than water. Well, sometimes it's not. But what does the text say? What does David say? Even if father and mother cast us out, the Lord will receive us. so will gather us in. He won't deny us. And so he prayed that God would do what? Would lead him in the way that he should go because of his adversaries. And notice in verses 13 and 14, David comes full circle, doesn't he? It's not this radical split between the first half of the psalm and the second half at all. He turns back to confidence in his Lord. His prayer leads him back to confidence in the Lord. Verses 13 to 14, it says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm not just expecting good things in heaven. God is going to make his face shine upon me somehow here now. I don't know when. Don't know how, but he says, I will I, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You know that phrase, look upon the goodness of the Lord, and earlier in the Psalm he talked about God putting him up high on a rock. You know, if, if I'm reading that and you're thinking that sounds familiar, well it should. It's, it's kind of a picture. It's a lot of the same language as, as is found back in Exodus 33. Remember that Moses tells God, show me your glory. And what does God say? You know, it's, you can't handle it. No man can see God and live, but I'll, I'll make you a deal, in a sense. I'm going to put you in, in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to cover you with my hand. I'm going to pass by you, and I'm going to let you see my goodness, my goodness pass before you. Moses saw the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, high up on a rock, in the cleft of the rock. And David's echoing the same thing. He's saying, I know, I believe I shall shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You know, we don't always see or feel the goodness of the Lord in this life at all times. But it doesn't mean that he has ceased being good. God does not change the one who desired Above all else, to behold the beauty of the Lord, the way the verse 4 is in the King James, uh, was also confident that he would indeed look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That God would, to use Romans 8.28 language, make all things work together for his good. David ends the psalm with an exhortation to you and to me. What What does he say there? Wait for the Lord. Be strong, let your heart take courage. That's a common Old Testament Refrain, be strong and courageous, he told Joshua. Uh, Wait for the Lord. You know, in a sense, if if you're reading the psalm and you're waiting for the therefore, you're waiting for the application, what am I supposed to do with this psalm in some sense? What's What's the takeaway? It's verse 14. Because of all that, because the Lord is our light, our salvation, the stronghold of our life, in time of trial we pray and we what? We wait. We wait for the Lord. We wait for him. That's the lesson of Psalm 27. And what is it to wait on the Lord? It's to trust him. It's to trust that he knows what he's doing. No matter how things may look, he knows what he's doing. And he will work good out of all things for you and for me if you are in Christ. So trust him no matter what you may be going through. Be strong and courageous. He is still your light. He's still your salvation. He's still the stronghold of your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know, some of these words in the psalm that we think of as sort of figurative and, and, and I don't know, uh, poetic, they're very literal in some sense. If you're a believer in Christ, one day you really will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the message. It's kind of the message of the whole New Testament in some ways, that the, the hope of the Christian is to be with the Lord forever. That is something that will come true in our lives as Christians. And as Romans 8.31 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's really the message of Psalm 27. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Psalms that, uh, that retune our hearts when our hearts get out of tune. We thank you that you are, no matter how things may look at any given moment, uh, due to affliction and trial and temptation, that you are still our light. That you are our light in a dark place. That you are our salvation. You don't just give us salvation. You are our salvation. That eternal life is knowing you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And you are the stronghold, the fortress of our, of our lives. And we thank you for that. We thank you that, that we can learn more and more to fear you and not fear anyone else because of that. Give us grace by your spirit to learn to fear you rightly, not out of a slavish fear, but the fear of a son for his father, knowing that you love us, you care for us, you will work all things out for our good, and that one day we will dwell with you forever and we'll be like you because we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see him, behold him as he is. We thank you for the fact that you love sinners like us that much, that you would allow us, because of Christ, to dwell with you forever. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory we pray. Amen.